authors Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins united a few years ago to begin one of the most popular series of novels in human history. It's a little bit hard to say that, hard to imagine. I've not read a single word of their now 13-volume Left Behind series, which hinges on the return of Jesus Christ, but I've read a lot about the series. I've not read the series simply because there's just too much else that I long to read first. But I've read articles about the series because I'm fascinated by the popular interest in them. When you put together the numbers and realize how many people are buying these volumes, the multiple millions of volumes that are being sold, it's clear that there are unbelievers in vast numbers reading this series. And much of what I've read has been written by unbelievers who are not happy about the fact that the Left Behind series has dominated the New York Times bestsellers list for so very long. In fact, some that I've read in some articles are downright crabby about it. They don't understand it. It really irritates them. And I imagine that's why they're writing articles, because they would like to write a book, but they can't get one sold and show up on the New York Times bestsellers list, so they say something sassy about it in a newspaper. It is an amazing phenomenon. The sheer volume of sales indicates how many unbelievers have at least considered the fact that Jesus Christ will come back. And you add to that great number the number who have just read the phrases and the titles and the blurbs on these bestseller lists. Many people in our culture in recent days have considered the return of Jesus Christ. It is amazing. A wonder that the return of Jesus Christ to earth is a hot topic. It has been, of course, a hot topic among, among God's people for over two millennia. Among believers, the debate rages as to when Christ will return, or if he has already returned, a view that is gaining in popularity as we meet here today, or how his return will relate to his millennial reign. But despite this great debate, I don't know that there is a song, by the way, that we can sing about the return of Christ that every, with which everyone would agree. It is a place of great debate and great confusion among God's people as to all of the details concerning the return of Christ. But with all of that debate, is there not in the heart of God's people a desire that Jesus Christ will return? We long for that as genuine believers. Why is that? Why is it that we want Jesus to return? Is it fear? I want Jesus to return so that I don't have to face death. I think there's much more to it than that in the heart of a genuine believer. Is the reason merely relational? I want to meet Jesus sooner than I would if I had to wait for death or something of the like. I think there's more to it than that, though that certainly is a great and powerful motivation, one that we sung of here earlier today. I long to see Jesus. Why would I not want to see him today as opposed to some distant date in the future? There's more to it than that. This is my own thinking, and perhaps you would differ with it, 
But I really think that the primary reason is because we are kingdom creatures. We are at the core of our being kingdom creatures. God made us in His image. We were created to live as God's chosen people, in God's chosen place, under God's sovereign rule. We are kingdom creatures. At the core of our being, then, God's people long to be ruled by Jesus Christ on this planet. This desire is in our souls, and nothing will be right until that hope is realized. And Jesus is not on this planet, is he? Until he is, there will be this yearning for consummation, for that time when Jesus dwells among us and rules over us here. And that is precisely what Jesus continued to say that he would do. And he will. But in the meantime, we find ourselves awaiting this consummation with hope. And Jesus instructs us in Luke chapter 17 concerning his kingdom as it pertains then to both his first coming and his second coming. We have a longing for kingdom. We have a longing as God's genuine people for the consummation of that kingdom, but we realize that, it ha that Christ has come twice. He has been here in the past and he will come again. How do we understand his coming and his kingdom? This passage before us will not answer all of those questions, nor will those questions all be answered in this lifetime, I am sure, as we grapple with Scripture. But Jesus does instruct us here how to understand His two comings and the relationship to the kingdom of God. With all that we learn from Jesus concerning these two aspects of the kingdom, His instructions certainly do this. They warn us not to be left behind. They warn us with the fact that as Jesus comes, it is a time of separation. There are those who come to him and leave with him or join with him, and there are those who reject him and face judgment. We find this teaching very clearly marked out for us in Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 20, where the kingdom of God and Christ's first coming is the consideration in these first uh, in verses 20 and 21. It's important here to note, as we do in verse 20, that Jesus converses here with the Pharisees. Think first coming, think kingdom of God, and think Pharisees. That's the context. Verse 20, once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is among you. It is important to note that he speaks to the Pharisees. They expected what? They expected a cataclysmic, apocalyptic appearance of Messiah. And for good reason. The Old Testament prophesied that that is how Messiah would come. He would come in great glory. He would come to rule the earth. He would come to put down his enemies. And the Pharisees so, say, so Jesus, 
when will this messianic kingdom arrive? It's clear to them, I think at this point, that Jesus is presenting himself as Messiah. He certainly has not come in great glory. So when will this kingdom come? They say to Jesus. They're anxiously seeking these signs. Jesus corrects their thinking here when he says the kingdom of God does not come with careful observation. If you write in your Bible, and please do, cross out the word your. There is a little bit of an interpretive tip of the hand there that is not needed because the word your is not in the original text. It's not in the Greek text. The kingdom of God does not come with careful observation. In other words, do not look for cataclysmic signs indicating the arrival of the Messiah. That's not what you're to be looking for. The, the translation, your, would indicate that there was some sort of ritual that the Pharisees needed to perform for the kingdom to come. I don't think that's the idea at all. Again, your is not in the original text. So the idea is don't be looking to the sky for this uh, cataclysmic, uh, unbelievable symbol of the coming of Messiah. Verse 21, in fact, when people say here it is or there it is, don't really believe them because that's not, what it's going, that's not how it's going to come. In fact, people won't say that because the kingdom of God is among you. Now he's, as we say, messing with the Pharisees here a bit. There's no question about that. And what he's saying is do not investigate tips running all over Palestine looking for the next claim that the kingdom has arrived. Why? Because it is among you. We have here the translation within you. And in my Bible, I've crossed that out and put the word among. And let me give you a little explanation why, because so much hinges on this participle. It's very important. But let me ask, I think something should jog your thinking anyway, just to say when Jesus says to the Pharisees, the kingdom is within you, would he mean that the kingdom of God dwells in the heart of the Pharisees? There's a lot of things Jesus has said about the Pharisees. That's not one of them. That the kingdom of God dwells in their heart by any means. That would give us indication that perhaps we should take this participle to be read a different way. And it can legitimately be taken in a number of different ways. But I don't think he's saying that the kingdom of God dwells in your heart. For that matter, Jesus consistently presented the kingdom of God as something you enter, not as something that enters you. So the idea that the kingdom of God resides within the heart of the Pharisees is just flat wrong. The participle can be translated among, and that yields a much better idea. I think Jesus is saying in a veiled way, I am the Messiah, follow me. The kingdom of God is right in front of you. Open your eyes. If you will, go back to chapter 11 and verse 20. Chapter 11 of Luke and verse 20. I'll read actually at verse 19 where Jesus in the, is in the midst of defending his ministry to those who are attacking him. And he talks about the, how illogical is their thinking. Verse 19 of Luke 11. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. 
It has come. And all of the miracles of Jesus indicate this very point. The kingdom of God is among you. You are looking at the king. The chosen people of God were in God's chosen place, and the king was with them. The kingdom is among you. Now, that's a brand new concept for the Pharisees along a number of lines. But Jesus has been preparing them for this concept and preparing his people for this concept. You remember Luke chapter 13, as we talked about the mysteries of the kingdom. Jesus reveals these mysteries. That is, God has not said this to you in the Old Testament. Prophets have not indicated this idea. But here is a new revelatory insight the kingdom of God will come like, mustard, like a mustard seed growing into a great tree, like yeast in a lump of dough filling it. That is, you've never thought of this before because the, New, the Old Testament has not given you this idea, but the kingdom of God will be something that comes quietly and will expand slowly. So Jesus is reorienting the whole concept of the kingdom for people as he teaches. Jesus is now here informing the Pharisees of an aspect of God's kingdom they could never have, have anticipated, that the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God had come with an infant child born in Bethlehem. Messiah stood before them. What's the point? The point is they need to respond to what they see, not to look to the sky for something greater. The kingdom had dawned, and it was time to walk into the light lest they be left behind and miss the grace of God. This is chapter 12 all over again. Be warned. I am the Messiah. Respond to me. That is really all the Pharisees need to know about the kingdom of God. If they are not going to receive the king, then a discussion about the kingdom of God is folly. Why discuss the signs? Why discuss the future if they're going to reject the king who stands in front of them? It's right there among them in the person of Jesus. But there was much, and there is much more to the kingdom of God than that, isn't there? Just Jesus standing before the Pharisees at this time. The kingdom of God and Christ's second coming is the topic of the verses now that follow. And you'll notice that the audience changes. Jesus talking to the Pharisees says, I am the king, receive me. But now Jesus begins to speak to his disciples. And he has something else to say, much more to say, as he speaks of the second coming. We see instructions, first of all, concerning the near future, and then he will talk to them about the more distant future. But first of all, in the near future, he says, verse 22, to the disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Jesus is saying here, I don't believe, and I've understood it this way uh, in the past, it might read this way naturally, but he's not saying you're going to become nostalgic about the good old days when I was here. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here, but rather is saying, understood in context, that the rule of Christ on earth, his second coming, will be something you long for. Now that 
says something to these disciples, doesn't it? Because as far as they're concerned, it is here, it's on its way, it's being established, it's got to only be a matter of, a short matter of time, that the kingdom is established with Jesus recognized as the King of Israel. Look at what's happening. There's thousands and thousands of people gathering around Jesus everywhere that he goes as they listen to him speak and, and watch him perform miracles. Jesus says, I want to prepare you for this. There's going to be a day when you long for my return. Be prepared for that day. They don't understand that. They don't know what it means. But in only a matter of months, they will. Now, says Jesus, I want you, as you wait for this return, not to chase after rumors. Verse 23. Men will tell you, here it is, here he is, or... There he is, do not go running after, off after them. For, why should you not go running after these rumors? Verse 24, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Instruction seems fairly straightforward, doesn't it? I mean, put yourself in the disciples' place. Can you imagine? In a few short weeks, Jesus will be gone. They love Jesus. They have walked with Jesus. They have longed for His coming. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to ascend into heaven. In a few short months, they will find themselves longing for His return, and they'll be out in the field. They'll be fishing from the boat. They'll be eating dinner with their family, and they'll hear the report, Jesus is in Galilee. Let's go. What would you do? I think your love for Jesus would naturally say, let's go find him. Jesus says, don't do that. You have to understand about the second coming. When these rumors come and people tell you that I'm in Galilee or I'm down in Judea or I'm over at the Jordan, don't believe it. Because when I come, everyone will see it. Did you hear that in the music this morning? All eyes shall see. In the sky, there will be a sign, an evidence that Jesus has come. You will not need to chase rumors. He will not come back and hide in a corner. When Jesus comes again, everyone will know it. So don't chase the rumors. Before that, however, I want you to understand, I must suffer, verse 25. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This also, the disciples are really not grasping at this point in time. Knowing that Jesus was the king, they look for him to do what Messiah was sent to do, to rule and to reign and to conquer the enemies of God. This is an allusion to what Jesus has made explicit in chapter 9, verse 22, chapter 9, verse 44. I will die and I will rise again. I must first suffer. Before this great coming in the sky, I will first give my life, is what he is saying in a somewhat cryptic manner. Having prepared his disciples then for this near future, Jesus will die. He will be rejected. Don't chase the rumors about his return. Preparing them for that time and the longing in their heart for his coming, he now goes to the end of time, to the end of this era, and he begins to discuss matters concerning this, the more distant future. I want to just add here for sake of our 
speedy understanding, what follows is not referring to the rapture as we would understand it. This is not talking about the rapture, but is talking about the second coming of Christ when he comes to earth to stay, when he comes to set up his rule. So just understand that as we go through. But verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. The days of the Son of Man here is a reference to Jesus and particularly to the time when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. Those days will be like the days of Noah. What does that mean? Verse 27. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, the inhabitants of the earth, when Jesus comes back, will be going about their business. They will be doing what they have always been doing. Going about their daily routine, Jesus will come unexpectedly, and he will come, as in the days of Noah, in judgment. Verse 28. It was the same way in the days of Lot. Just in case we didn't get that illustration, he gives another. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. When Jesus comes again, you do not want to be left behind. As Sodom was overwhelmed by fire, so the return of Jesus will overwhelm the inhabitants of the earth with judgment, and this will create a friendly fire situation. He will come in judgment. I don't know how this looks exactly, but he will come in judgment, and those who are his people will need to escape. If not, it will be like those left behind in the flood or those destroyed in the fires of Sodom. Like Noah, God's people will want to seek refuge. Like Lot, God's people will want to run to safety. That's what it will be like when I come back. Everyone will see it. Everyone will experience it. In fact, on that day, verse 31, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Picture flat roof, a lot of living done up there, an exterior um, staircase. You see the sign of Christ returning in the sky. You go down the staircase and you run. You don't go down the staircase and go back into your house to get your things. You're out in the field. You do not come back home to get your things. You run. And perhaps that means, though it's not explicit here, you don't even go back for your family. You just leave. You run because it's a time of judgment from which you must escape. Get out of town immediately. What is the motivation? Verse 33, or verse 32 rather, remember Lot's wife. In that moment, if you can remember nothing else, remember this, Lot's wife. 
You remember as God fired, uh, rained fire down upon Sodom, she turned back, apparently with longing for what she was leaving, and in that moment indicated her true heart's desire, and she was destroyed on the spot. Remember her when Jesus comes back. It's time to run. By way of principle, verse 33, Jesus says, Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. It seems to me that this means two things. If we can stretch it this far, I think it can be taken very literally. If you come back trying to gather your things and gather your people and get everything in order, it will be too late and you will be destroyed. But if you leave town immediately, you will find rescue. But I think we can also take this figuratively, in a spiritual sense. The people who go back for their material possessions evidence that they are in love with this world, and their delay will be their end. Let go of the things of this life. Let go of all things but Christ, and you'll live. Hold on to the idols of this world, and you will perish. Jesus gets very specific here at verse 34. I tell you, on that day, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There's textual variants here which don't add anything to the discussion. Some say that two will be in the field or something of the like. But the the point is that there will be people who are right together. One is taken and one is left. Now, what does that mean? And this is a major interpretive problem. What does it mean that one's taken and one's left? The Greek word taken is consistently used in the Bible to refer to entrance into divine fellowship. That is how it is is universally used in the New Testament. Being taken into divine fellowship. So we might use the phrase taken out or rescued. There will be some who are taken, that is some who are rescued, and there will be some who are left With both Noah and Lot, it is those who were left who were in trouble. Those who were left who were judged. It was those who were taken away who were saved. Noah taken away in the ark, Lot taken away uh, by way of escape. And that is the way left is used also in chapter 13 and verse 35. But for whatever, however we understand it, this is pretty clear. There will be a very precise and worldwide separation of God's people from the lost. It will not matter where you are. It will not matter with whom you are, or whom you are with. The lost will be judged and the saved will escape. When Christ returns, there will be a separation of his people from those who are not his people. And in that moment, you want to do nothing that will leave you behind. You want to do everything that will lead you to escape. The disciples ask, where, Lord? Where will this horrible judgment fall? Where will this need of escape fall? Are we talking Galilee? Are we talking Judea? Where where? Jesus cryptically says, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. 
That wasn't intended to make anyone feel well. That's a horrible picture. But I think what Jesus is saying is wherever the lost reject Christ, there will be bodies fallen on the earth and vultures gathered. In other words, we're not talking about where because we're talking about earth. Now, he could have said that, and I could be wrong in my interpretation. It's obviously a very difficult phrase to interpret, but I think that is, that is his idea. Where will this judgment fall? Deflecting the question, he says, wherever the corpses drop, the vultures will gather. Messiah's judgment will fall on the unprepared. Don't be unprepared. Don't be left behind. Don't miss the rescue. I don't know what this means. Run from what? All over the earth, the coming of Christ is seen, and by simply delaying to go back into your home to pick up your things, you're destroyed. And I don't understand that. Perhaps the day will, and I guess will, reveal the answer to what this means. Will there be some sort of call of Christ for his people to go one direction? And for everyone else to just stay where they are, how will that work on a round globe? I I have no idea. All that his disciples needed to know in Jesus' thinking, all that his future disciples will need to know in his thinking is this. When he comes, go to him. When he comes, it's like the day of the flood. Run to safety in the arms of Jesus. When he comes, it will be like the day of Lot. Don't turn back and look at Sodom. Leave. So the kingdom came quietly with the coming of Christ, his first coming. And I think that some of those blessings of the kingdom of God came to bear in the lives of God's people in consequence of that first coming. The king had come. The Spirit had been poured out on God's people. Forgiveness of sin had been provided. Jesus continues to reign from heaven's throne over his people today. And this is why the preaching of the Apostle Paul could be characterized as this, the preaching of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God had dawned quietly. It had come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the great cataclysmic apocalyptic day of Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament will also come. The kingdom of God awaits its consummation. It is a future entity. At his first coming, Jesus came quietly and he died humbly, miserably. But at his second coming, he will return in power and glory, and he will destroy those who reject him. And we need to ask, in this culture particularly, and at this time, is that the Jesus you know? A Jesus who will come to destroy sinners. If the Jesus that you know does not return in judgment, the Jesus in your head is a fiction. He's told us what he will do. He has said on that day there will be only one response, that is to run into the arms of safety. Jesus 
will destroy those who do not so respond. That's not a message that I enjoy delivering, a thought that I like to consider. But Jesus isn't asking us what we want. He's telling us what will be. And he is saying, as he has said so many times in his ministry, everything hinges on him. You either reject him or you receive him. Are you ready? Are you ready for the time that Jesus comes? I wonder if we could even just take this illustration of Jesus and allow it to sink in for a moment. If you had 10 seconds to run after Jesus and leave everything in this life behind, every material possession, your fame, your fortune, your family, would you turn and run toward Christ? Are you willing to leave all behind? Is that what's in your heart? Is that the kind of relationship that you have with Jesus Christ, that if he says it's time to run, you run? This is the kind of readiness we need to nurture in our hearts. Sadly, I think some days Jesus could come in this type of a scenario and we'd say, Jesus, wait, let my brain adjust here for a moment. Who's he again? Coming back? You mean it's over? Life is done? I've got to leave it all behind? No more future goals? No enjoyment of what I own and have? And He's here? Really? When it's time, will there, will there be a response in our heart to embrace Him and to run to Him? I think this is a question to ask, not only in light of this passage, but because it's a question that we should ask as we consider the fact that we will meet Jesus someday. However that is, it may be in death. Just as you close your eyes in death, will, you, will there be a longing to stay behind and hold on? Or will there be a release to go to the one who has saved you? Into the arms of the Savior. How will you respond? Are you ready to go? If Jesus' second coming is in two stages, as we believe, if he raptures his church, he will not be on the earth. We will not be on the earth for this passage. This won't happen to us if Christ raptures his church. If he does not, if we are wrong to believe in a rapture, then his coming, the coming of Christ cannot take place. In my thinking, if we're fair and literal with the text of Scripture, it can't happen for another seven years at least. But in either event, a rapture prior to the tribulation or the return of Christ after the tribulation, in either event, you do not want to be left behind. However anyone from a premillennial position would take it, that is the issue, not to be left behind for judgment. Are you sure that you will not be left behind? We need to stay prepared, which is why I read earlier that passage from Titus. Let me just read it again, and I'd like you to think of it differently and fill it up with more detail on the basis of this text before us. 
Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Are you ready for Christ? Is your heart moving toward Him? Do you long for His return? Do you want to be with Him? It will change the way you live. Because He's truly coming. And when He comes back, those who are His will be rescued, and those who are not will be left to their rejection and to its consequence. Destruction. If you're not ready today, and you know you're not ready, I implore you to get ready now. Because Jesus is coming, and His next coming will separate the saved from the lost. Throw yourself now upon the mercy of God, because you don't want to be left behind. You come into the arms of a Savior who will provide the forgiveness of your sin and will lead you in rescue out of this fallen world before it is judged. That's where you want to be. I pray and hope, if you're not ready, that you will get ready today. Because Jesus is coming. He's coming as a Savior, and He's coming as a judge. You want to be on the right side of that equation. Let's bow for prayer. Father, these are heavy thoughts. And I pray that you'd rebuke anyone who doesn't think that they are. God, forgive us if we would take flippantly the coming judgment. I pray, dear God, that also there would be in response to this passage before us today a great joy and hope. We long in our hearts for Jesus to come. We long for that day when God's people will be in God's place and will be ruled by His sovereign hand here on earth. Hasten that day, I pray, dear God. I ask, Lord, that you will work in the heart of anyone who's not prepared. I pray, Lord, that you will draw them to yourself and help them to realize that there is a judgment to avoid. Forgive us, Father, as a nation in the broader evangelical world. Forgive us for not warning people of judgment. And I thank you in your providence, though I don't know what you think of the Left Behind series. I thank you that in your providence at least someone has been saying something 
and letting this world know that Jesus Christ is coming again. I pray that we might be articulate and faithful warners. That we will sound the alarm to a world that is lost and clueless about the return of Christ. And God, I don't know how to do that. It is so hard to go to an unbeliever and tell them a pending judgment and not to be taken as some sort of science fiction freak. God, how do we broach that subject and how do we talk about Christ crucified and risen? Obviously, we cannot make it palatable. We cannot make it make sense. But I do pray, Lord, that we as your people would be faithful so that as you call out your own, that we would find them and share the gospel with them and be faithful to this doctrine that Jesus will return in judgment. May we proclaim the good news of the gospel. And may we, Lord, prepare ourselves to be people of your possession, unique people who are being purified by our hope in the return of Christ. May we light a candle and wait, and may we hold that candle high and illumine this lost world. Draw to yourself anyone who is separated from the grace of God. Open their eyes today to these truths and bring them into the arms of Jesus, we pray according to your will and purposes, through Jesus. Amen.